page 54 of the Church Bibles, Genesis 48, reading from verse 1 to verse 22. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Cana, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they inherit, will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath, so I buried her there beside the road of Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now, Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully, the God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel has delivered me from all harm. May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, I give you one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. As we come to this portion of God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you for these words in the book of Genesis. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will so work in us that your word will speak clearly, 
not only into our minds, but also into our hearts, that you would teach us to love you, to know you, and to trust you this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jacob, Israel, has largely kind of receded from the story until this point. He kind of reappeared last week, didn't he? But if you've been following with us in the book of Genesis, as we come towards the end, we circle back to the story of Jacob. We realize this is really the ending of his story. And it's a funny little account, isn't it? I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, the, the founder of the Israelite nation sort of halfway through that the crucial moment in this whole story is him doing a sort of early version of Gangnam style. He crosses his hands and for some reason that's so significant that the writer of Genesis draws our attention to it repeatedly and emphasizes it. Why is him blessing his grandchildren like this such a big deal? What's going on? Well, uh, you'll see 48 verse 1. Sometime later, Joseph's told your father's ill. So he takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Notice the order along with him. Manasseh, the older brother, Ephraim, the younger. And Jacob is obviously so sick that he is lying in bed and basically not moving. Until he's told that Joseph is coming, at which point he rallies his strength and sits up on his bed. This is his moment. What you'll see if you scan your eyes across to chapter 49, verse 1, is that this scene of chapter 48 is the beginning of Jacob's deathbed scene. After this, he blesses each of his sons in turn. Uh, And then, I mean, it's almost... You know, the Hebrew idiom is almost, he turned up his toes and died. He withdrew his feet into the bed and he died. This is the end of Jacob's story. Uh, And this moment with his two grandsons is the beginning of that ending scene to the life of this founding figure in the history of God's people. So Joseph comes, Joseph the son that for so many years Jacob had thought was lost to him, was dead, eaten by wild beasts, comes with his sons, Jacob's grandsons. And he sits up and it's funny, isn't it? He doesn't say anything as far as we're told to Joseph to start with other than to remind him of his own story. Verse three, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. Now, back in chapter 28 uh, of Genesis, uh, we're told about something that happens to Jacob in a place called Bethel. It's always been known as Bethel ever since that moment uh, with uh, uh, Jacob. And it's one of those sort of funny things that, give you a sense that this really is history that's being written. Because 
Uh, He calls it Bethel, the house of God, because he goes to sleep there, puts his head on a stone, goes to sleep and sees angels ascending and descending on on a sort of ladder up and down into heaven, God's messengers. Uh, And so he calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. That's the story of Jacob's ladder. Uh, And so from that point on, whenever that place is mentioned in the Bible, it's called Bethel. And it's still called that when Jesus goes there in the Gospels. But here, as Jacob's talking to uh, his son Joseph, it's still called Luz by everyone all around because that's what it was called when he was there. And he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples, and I'll give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. I mean, just that sentence tells a thousand stories. He's pointing back to the promise God made to his grandfather, Abraham. God called Abraham uh, out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees, that is uh, modern-day Iraq, uh, and calls him him to go on a journey to Canaan. He says, I'm going to give you this land, this incredibly abundant land, and I'm going to make you great, and I will make you uh, into a father of many nations, and I will bless you. Uh, If you didn't hear my watch talking, then what I just did would seem very strange. Uh, (laughs) But uh, just so we're clear, Siri just said to me, I'm not sure I understand, which may be how you're feeling. But anyway, we'll try, we'll press on, even though my watch doesn't understand me. So, God has called him and says, I will give you a land, I will make you into a great people, and I will bless you. And in promising that to Abraham and saying you'll be a blessing to many nations, God is actually talking to him about turning the world back the right way up again. Right back at the start of the story of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are put into a garden, they're in God's place, they're enjoying God's blessing, and he says to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then because they turn away from him, they turn in on themselves, they try to be God of their own lives, Uh, the result is is death and decay and exile and curse. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to turn all that around, I'm going to turn all that back the right way up again. Uh, Instead of exile, I'm going to give you a home. Uh, Instead of death and decay, I'm going to make you prosperous. I'm going to make you fill the earth and subdue it. Instead of curse, I'm going to bless you. And Jacob is saying, God reiterated, remade that promise to me. And he said, I would be the heir of that promise. And through me, all those wonderful things that God said to Abraham would come true. It's an extraordinary thing. What what Jacob's really saying is that God appeared to me at Luz and told me that he was going to save the world through me and through my offspring. Huge, if true. And with that ringing in his ears, what God, the enormous impact of what God has said to Jacob ringing in his ears, the next thing Joseph hears when he said, I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Then Jacob says, now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came here will be reckoned as mine. 
He says, they won't be treated as my grandsons, but as my sons. In other words, they will inherit this blessing along with all my other sons. And, and from here on in, instead of 12 tribes grown from 12 sons, there will be 12 tribes, but one of those tribes will have two heads, Ephraim and Manasseh, the two half tribes. They both get to have their names as the names of tribes in Israel. They'll both get their own inheritance. And, and so, Joseph, if you have other children here in Egypt, well, then they will inherit as if they were the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. They're being bumped up a generation. They're being given extra blessing. It's an absolutely extraordinary thing that he does. And he kind of explains why it is. He talks about his sorrow at the death of Rachel, talks about burying her there in Bethlehem. Rachel died in childbirth, giving birth to the last of Jacob's sons, Benjamin. She was absolutely the apple of Jacob's eye. He had loved her from the moment he saw her. He was besotted with her and he was heartbroken at her death and desperately protective of her sons, cut to pieces when he thought that Joseph would never come back to him, Joseph being the son of Rachel. And so he he says, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're going to be God's compensation to me that Rachel was not able to bear me any more sons. I think that's the picture. That's why he suddenly switches into talking about Rachel. Otherwise, it just, it's confusing, isn't it? It seems like he's rambling. But I think he's explaining. Finally, God has provided me with the sons that Rachel could never bear. And so then verse 8, again, there's a sort of slightly strange moment, isn't there? Because he looks at the two sons and says, who are these? Well, hang on a minute, he's just been talking about them and what he's going to do for them. Uh, and now he says, who are these? Uh, I think the best explanation of it is that um, this is like a kind of formal adoption ritual. Who are these, he says. These are the sons God has given me, says, Jacob. It's, it says Joseph. It's a very uh, formal exchange. And then Israel says, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now, I'm not sure exactly how old Ephraim and Manasseh are at this point, but Joseph comes and, and pops them on his knee. And we're told why, verse 10. Now, Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Now, I wonder, does does that moment in the story ring any bells for you? If you've been uh, coming along uh, in the mornings as we uh, studied uh, the sort of middle chapters of Genesis, uh, then um, towards the end of last year, then you would remember this similar scene between Jacob and his father. Jacob's dad, Isaac, had two sons, twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older son. And Isaac thought that Esau was just great. Esau was a man's man. He loved to hunt. He smelt like game. And Isaac thought, yes, this is the kind of guy who can inherit the blessing from me. And he was the firstborn. He was supposed to inherit. 
Uh, and so when he was sick and uh, thought he was about to die, he, he called Esau to him and said, go out and hunt game for me one last time. And when you return, I will bless you. But we're told Isaac's eyesight had gone. He could no longer see well. So Jacob, egged on by his mother, came into the tent of Isaac with animal skins on his arms so he felt like Esau and smelt like Esau and pretended to be Esau. And though he was the younger son, he received the blessing because of Isaac's failing eyesight. Right? So when we're told Israel's eyes were failing, we're thinking, hey oh, we know what's coming now, don't we? He's going to be fooled in some way. Just like he was fooled, if you've been coming along, you'll remember, just like he was fooled on his wedding night into taking Leah, the sister he didn't love, instead of Rachel, by his conniving Uncle Laban in the dark of the tent and with her wearing a veil. We think we know this story. We know what's coming. Because of his poor eyesight, he is going to be bamboozled. His eyes were failing because of old age he could hardly see. So Joseph brings the sons close. Uh, and then, as if to highlight that, honestly, there's a bit of a joke around seeing going on here, what's the next thing that Israel says? He says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. But now God has allowed me to see your children too. He can't really see anything. And yet... He's been reunited not only with Joseph, but with his sons. It's a moment of intense joy, but there's a play on his blindness, and we think we know what's coming. Somehow, something's going to get mixed up because he can't see. So this is how we know they're on his knee. Verse 12, Joseph removes them from Israel's knee and bows down with his face to the ground, and he puts them there, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's uh, left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand. Do you see the picture? Younger son, Joseph's right, Jacob's left. Older son, Joseph's left, Jacob's right. So that the, the right hand, which gives the primary blessing, will go on the hand of the older son. But we've already been given all kinds of hints that all is not going to be as we expect. Verse 1, he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, named in order of age. But then verse 5, what does Jacob say? These two sons born to you before I came here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh. He names the younger first. But Joseph makes pretty sure, look dad, you need to make sure you need to get them the right way around. He, he puts them there in front of him so Right hand goes on older son's head. But Israel, look with me, reach, verse 14. Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Jacob and said. And then verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. And he said, no, father, 
this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. He actually physically takes hold of his dad's hand and tries to uncross them. You're blind, you're doddering, you don't know what's going on, says Joseph. And this is the moment where the story really surprises us because it turns out that the blind man sees better than the younger seeing man. His father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. I'm not that blind. I'm not being foolish. Manasseh too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. This is very deliberate on Jacob's part. And it's prophetic. He knows what somehow in this moment he has insight into God's plan. He, he, he prays the blessing just the way he knows God wants it to be. He crosses his hands. It's not what Joseph's expecting. It's not what Joseph wants. And Joseph, like so many children with elderly parents, gets frustrated and thinks he knows best. Has no idea just quite how lucid his father really is. But the one who can't see sees clearly. And so there is, at the heart of this story, another subversion of our expectations. The the Jewish uh, commentator, Robert Alter, says of this passage and of this moment, the crossing of his hands, that it's like a microcosm of the whole book of Genesis. Why does he say that? Because the whole way through... Human plans and human expectations are subverted by a God who does things his way and especially by a God who shows that he operates not by the ways of humanity and the world but by his own extraordinarily gracious way. So if you know the story of Abraham, you'll know God promises him offspring and promises he'll make him into a great nation. Uh, And Abraham, uh, thinking in the way of the world, thinks, well, hang on a minute, I am an old man, I'm 100 years old, and my wife has never been able to have children. She will never be able to provide me with the son needed to carry on my line, for God's blessing to come true, for God's promise to come true. So he says, and cooks up this plan with Sarah, that he will uh, go to Hagar, her servant girl, and they can conceive a child, and that child can be the offspring. Look, God, we're helping you out. We know you can't possibly do what you've promised, so we'll do it for you. We've got this. We'll, We'll sort it out. We can figure out what's needed. We'll do it. And so Abraham's son, Ishmael, is born. That's not God's plan. And God comes and visits Abraham again and says to him, by this time next year, your wife will bear you a son. And Sarah, Abraham's wife, thinks that is so hilarious that she sniggers in the tent. And God says to her, why are you laughing? And she says, I'm not laughing. He says, you did laugh. 
And when Isaac, her son, is born, just as God had told her would happen, what do they call him? Well, they call him Isaac, you know that. But what does it mean? It means laughter. God's plans, God's power, are hilarious. It's so ridiculous the way God does what he wants to do, so far beyond anything that we would imagine or think could happen, that actually the first instance of this in the story of Abraham's family actually results in a child being called laughter because it's so hilarious. And so it goes on. Isaac has these two sons, the cheeky, thieving, conniving Jacob, who his dad thinks could never be the basis of the nation that God has promised, is the one who gives his name to the nation, Israel. He's the one who here is dishing out wisdom from God that Joseph can't fathom. And now with Joseph's own sons, Jacob is blessing the younger ahead of the older. God's ways are not our ways. God works not by what we do, but by his own gracious plan. So that Jacob's own experience of receiving God's blessing becomes almost like the model throughout the Bible of how God graciously chooses to bless who he will bless, not because of who is the best, but simply because he loves them. At the heart of this story is a God who gives freely and not in the way that we think he should. God loves you more and better than you could ever deserve. And and so, who are the people who are drawn to Jesus? Who are the people who hang out with Jesus? Who are the people that Jesus consistently blesses uh, and uh, confers honor on in, in the New Testament? They're the outcasts. They're the ones who people think are far from God, could never receive God's blessing. He loves sinners. So that the religious leaders find themselves asking questions like, who is this man who eats with tax collectors and prostitutes? Even right back here in Genesis, there is that question. What does God think he's doing? Blessing people who don't deserve it. Repeatedly, it's the younger instead of the older. Not the one who deserves to inherit by right, but the one God chooses to bless. What's the point? Well, two things. First of all, in terms of ourselves, so often we think that if God is going to receive us, it's because somehow we've wormed our way into his good books. We've somehow managed to balance out any wrong we might have done by doing good, by by sort of polishing ourselves up and presenting ourselves to God and saying, look, you can be pleased with me. God says, that's not how I do things because there's no amount of polish in the world that could polish you up that much. I, 
I love people because I love them. I show grace, it's totally undeserved. If I welcome you into my family, it's not because of you, it's because of me. So our relationship to God is one that he graciously and freely gives to us at his own expense. Not because somehow we've done better than average. I think that's important for us for all kinds of reasons. It helps us, and this will come to, we'll come on to this in a second, it helps us not to be what people assume Christians are, which is self-righteous, exclusive, and smug. It helps us to be like Jesus, to be gracious and welcoming and loving. But it also keeps us from false faith. It keeps us from putting our trust in ourselves the way Abraham put his trust in himself. He said, look, God, I know you can't possibly give me what I need, but I can do it for myself. It keeps us from that false faith of trusting ourselves rather than trusting him, rather than putting our faith in him. Faith in ourselves is misplaced. Faith in God is never misplaced. The God who gives grace always gives more grace. But it also means that we ought to expect and welcome the unexpected person into the church. We should not be surprised that the people God calls to himself are not necessarily the people that we would think God should be calling. In Jesus' day, it was tax collectors and Pharisees, social outcasts, people that everyone looked down on. You know, the sort of people you think, well, like... At least I'm not as bad as that. I was trying to think of who fits into that sort of category for us today. It wouldn't be tax collectors. I mean, no one likes the HMRC, do they? But, you know, it's hardly like, you know, you're the worst of the worst. God could never love you. I wonder wonder about racists. I um, once sat down to interview a man who was wanting to uh, train at theological college where I taught. Uh, his name's Matt. Uh, and um, I often, at the start of an interview like that, would ask people to tell me their story of how they came to faith. It's a, a great way to get to know somebody. And so he started to tell me. Uh, and as he told me his story, I couldn't believe it. Most stories like that don't start with, well, I was a white supremacist. So you were what? Yeah, I was involved with a skinhead gang. Um, I got involved with drugs and they got me selling amphetamines and um, actually I was due to go to court I'd been found guilty I just had to go for sentencing and the day before my court date I didn't know what to do he said so I there was in the football stadium in my town there was a, a, a Christian rally so I went along I didn't believe I didn't think I'd find God there but I just did not know what else to do so he said I went along and he said it was, there was lots of razzmatazz and a big band and then the speaker. And at the end, the speaker said, if anyone wants to receive Jesus into their life, come forward and kneel. He says, well, I didn't know what else to do. I thought maybe I'll give it a try. I don't think I really believed any of it, but I, he said, I went forward and I, and I knelt. Nothing happened. I didn't feel any different or any better. My life wasn't suddenly fixed. So I left. 
He said he went out of the stadium into the sort of corridor underneath the stand. It was pretty much deserted. He's there in his um, in a kind of white vest, tight snow wash jeans and skinheads, you know, DMs or American equivalent. And uh, obviously a skinhead, obviously a white supremacist. You know, he, if he'd had racist tattooed on his forehead. <laughs> and he said, I was... I was walking along, and then I realized there was someone coming the other way. And um, you could see from quite a long way away that he was a black man. He was huge. Uh, and I was walking towards him, and he was walking towards me, and I tried to kind of look away. And you know how if there's someone coming towards you and you don't really want to sort of meet them, you sort of veer off a bit? And he said, every time I, I moved one way, or, or the other, he sort of tracked with me, and he, he was sort of like a heat-seeking missile. He was coming for me, and I thought, what's going to happen when I get to him? And finally, those two trains came right, right up next to him, and the, this big black man looks at Matt, the skinhead, the racist, and says to him, I saw you. I saw you go up to the front I saw you kneel, and there's just one thing I want to say to you. And he sort of flung out his arms, and Matt thought, I don't know what's going to happen now. And he just embraced him in a big hug, and he said, welcome to the family, brother. Isn't that extraordinary? And Matt said, that's the point at which I knew it was true. What a miracle that someone could show grace like that to me. He said, that I didn't deserve at all. That man showed him the grace, the undeserved love of the gospel in that moment, didn't he? That's the sort of grace that's at the heart of this passage. So that's the first thing to note. The second is to see how Jacob, much more briefly, as he gets to the end of his life, looks back on it all. Just look with me at verse 15. When he blesses Joseph in blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, this is what Jacob says. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. It's the first time in the Bible that God is called a shepherd. The Lord who has been my shepherd, says Jacob, all of my days, he's kept me from harm. The angel, he's delivered me from all harm. If you remember the story when Jacob meets the angel by the Jabbok River, the angel dislocates his hip and permanently cripples him. He's walked with a limp every day from that moment. And yet he can say, He's just talked, hasn't he, about how his favorite wife, the woman he was utterly devoted to, died much too young. He's talked about how Joseph, his favorite son, was lost to him for most of his adult life. And yet he can say, God has been my shepherd all my life to this very day. Every day God has been my shepherd. Every day he has been guiding and leading me. Even that angel who crippled me has kept me from harm. 
Do you see the point? He's finally got it. He's realized that what God wants to do in your life is not necessarily what you want him to do in your life. God surprises us with the way he answers our prayers too. And look, this is a hard thing. Jacob went through some gut-wrenching experiences in his life. His life was hard in so many ways. And yet he could say, the Lord has been my shepherd. He has been guiding me. When his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson David turns the idea of God as shepherd into a song, the way he ends it is to say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jacob says, God has been bringing me home. He's kept me from harm. He's been guiding me home through all of these things. He has blessed me. He's learned to trust that though what God does in your life may not be what you want God to do in your life, God really is a shepherd to his people and he really does lead you home. And so finally, the lesson for Joseph in all of this, knowing those two things, that God gives unconditional and undeserved grace, that God is a shepherd to his people and he can be trusted through the very worst things, that what you think God should do And what God should actually do are not always the same thing. There's so much in that. But Joseph is desperate that the blessing should go to Manasseh first and then to Ephraim. But God will not answer his prayer. God will do things God's way. And the lesson that Jacob has learned is the lesson that Joseph must learn and the lesson that you and I must learn. Which is that God actually knows better than me. God is actually wiser than me. God knows what I really need, no matter what I want. Which means, I suppose, to put it as briefly as I can, that we should allow God to disagree with us. That's part of what it means for him to be God is that he's allowed to disagree with you. We think we know, don't we? We think we know what's right. Not only what's the right thing to happen next in my life, but what should be right and wrong, what God's priorities should be, how God should treat people, what God should think about X, Y, or Z. But actually, if God is meaningfully going to be God, at some point I'm going to have to accept that that means that he gets to disagree with me and he gets to be right. And I must follow and obey him, not only when I see why he calls me to obey him in a particular area of my life, but even when it doesn't seem to make any sense to me at all. You know, the simple and obvious thing, when it feels like my career is on the line, 
Not so often the case in my line of work, though for some it is sometimes. And it feels like my career is on the line if I'm not prepared to lie for my boss. If I'm not prepared to sort of cook the books a little bit. If I'm not prepared, you know, to just fiddle things, cut a corner. The thing to do is obvious, isn't it? We all know, obvious. You just, well, it's just the cost of doing business. It's just what you've got to do. It's just the only, the only way. But God calls us to be people of the light and people of the truth. It doesn't make any sense to obey him when your job's on the line, does it? Now, I could tell you stories extraordinary stories of people who in that kind of moment have trusted God and done the right thing and said things like uh, when the phone goes and the boss says tell them I'm not here he says to tell you he's not here and then faced it by a furious boss who said well if I could lie to them I could lie to you couldn't I don't you want someone who's always going to tell you the truth and they've ended up getting promoted and it's always great that's not what always happens though, is it? It's not a promise. Sometimes I might obey God and bad things might happen to me as a result. And yet even then, God is to be trusted. His way is right. You get the point. He is so good. He is so wise. But his ways are not our ways. He doesn't do things the way we do things. And so when things go wrong for us, we shouldn't think that that means that somehow God's changed his mind about us or he doesn't care about us or he's not good anymore or he's not powerful anymore. He is good. And he is powerful. And one day, you will look him in the eye and you will know that he has never put a foot wrong and that he's been your shepherd. every day and he's led you home.